Welcome to Think Change. I'm Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. The high-level week of the UN General Assembly begins on Monday, and this is a significant year because it marks a critical halfway point in the delivery of the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. But the global goals, as they're also known, were adopted in a 2015 UN resolution known as the Agenda 2030. These 17 interlinked goals were designed to provide a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future, as the agenda said. Following the global pandemic and all the compounding shocks that have followed in the past two, three years, um, what we call the poly crisis today, there has been actually a lot of debate about how to get the SDGs back on track. But were the SDGs ever a realistic or an achievable framework in the first place? Or was this more of an aspirational concept um, all along? And as governments face stark trade-offs in the face of you know, really multiple crises, how useful are the SDGs as a framework for navigating them? So I wanted to convene today's episode ahead of the UN General Assembly meeting to have a frank conversation about you know, the collective progress that we have made towards Agenda 2030. But I also want to explore alternative visions for a new post-2030 agenda and, and hear about the different actors, the coalitions, the ideologies, the ways of working that we may need to engage um, to bring to life. Um, and I can't think of better placed people to have the discussions with me than the three distinguished guests that are joining me today. I'm really honored to introduce those who are considered as the fathers of the SDGs, you know, Ambassador David Donahoe and Ambassador Machara Kamau, who were the co-facilitators of the post-2015 development agenda. David was formerly Ireland's permanent representative to the United Nations and is now, I'm delighted to say, one of ODI's distinguished fellows. Uh, Macharia was Kenya's permanent representative to the UN at the time the SDGs were uh, um, created, and he is now the special envoy for Uhuru Kenyatta's Institute and working on the peace efforts in the DRC in Congo. He's also the special advisor for the president of the Trade Development Bank of Comesa, and he is a fellow member of the seventh advisory group to the UN Secretary General Peacebuilding Fund. And joining them, I'm really delighted to introduce Rachel Kite, who until recently was the Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and I'm honored to say has just been appointed as a trustee on the board of ODI. Welcome, David Macharia and Rachel. Um, David, let me start with you. Um, as I just mentioned, um, they see you and Macharia as the architects of the SDGs. Um, but David, as the, you know, these halfway points, where do you see the most promising progress and where have we had the biggest setbacks? Well, Sarah, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here with, with Macharia and Rachel, uh, both um, old friends, um, and with you most of all. Um, where do I see promising progress? For me, to be honest, the concept of a, a single normative framework, uh, which all country, which would bind all countries, politically and morally, if not legally, for me that is um, the the most important progress that has been made. Because if you measure it uh, in terms of the visible commitment of 100 well, almost 100, almost all the 193 countries, then it is quite astonishing that uh, seven years in, we still have this this unbroken commitment. I mean, uh, 
no country has resiled from the SDGs. I frankly thought that Trump might do it when he was in in Washington, D.C. He didn't. He pulled out of other agreements, not the SDGs. If you measure in terms of the number of countries who have come um, to deliver their voluntary national reviews, that's 188, uh, uh, some of them several times over. Um, now, I mean, one can still deliver a report and not be internally committed, uh, but I think it's, it, it's nevertheless a good signal of, of um, support for the agenda. Um, in terms of uh, setbacks, you've mentioned them yourself, Sarah, the two most notable setbacks were the pandemic and then the Ukraine war. Neither of those could have been foreseen seven years ago. Each has had a profound uh, impact on, I suppose, the political energies, the resources, the, the, the multilateral system, and we're paying a price for it in various ways. But um, I think that just means that we have to renew our efforts in the second period from, from, from now on. And I'm pretty sure that the SDGs summit in a few days' time will deliver that message. Thanks, David. Um, Mashara, let me come to you. I mean, obviously, the SDGs followed um, the, MD, uh, the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, when you were working on the post-2015 development agendas, what was the feedback you were hearing around the Millennium Development Goals at the time? And, and do you think we've learned from those lessons in the way the countries have adopted the SDGs? Well, let me also say thank you very much for having me uh, here today. Um, it's wonderful to see David uh, here and, uh, and others who are on board. Um, I think, like every parent, uh, I'm very, very, very proud of the uh, uh, little baby that's become a global child that is called the Sustainable Development uh, Movement. Uh, it's no longer, a, they're no longer goals, really. Uh, the world has been swept up, and anybody who's paying attention knows this, uh, because there is no debate on any element of the 17 goals uh, that is not structured around the SDGs on, on a global platform that I know of. And uh, if you look at where we were with the Millennium Development Goals, these were very limited and very targeted, very useful indeed, uh, because the Millennium Development Goals uh, helped us focus on the the worst elements uh, that were challenging global development at the time, particularly in the global south, particularly targeted around uh, health issues, uh, survival issues, food security issues, water and sanitation and so on. And uh, the Millennium Development Goals helped us, uh, helped the United Nations in particular, uh, really galvanized global support around those issues and sh and showed real progress. Uh, but everybody recognized the limitations of the MDGs. Uh, they were not as comprehensive as the SDGs. Uh, they were not universal uh, as the SDGs are. And most importantly, they missed out on critical elements of the enabling environment that brings around development, peace and security in the world. And 
those were components that had become self-evidently urgent uh, to the global community by the time we were in 2012, 2013. And so as we began the work, first of all, to put together the Sustainable Development Goals, which was a mammoth task to try to get the global community of 193 countries with the participation of over 2,000 non-governmental organizations representing all communities uh, around the globe to get them to agree on the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 of them, and the 147 targets that were very specific, that had deep scientific uh, structures and a deep scientific backbone to them, was amazing. Um, and we did not overreach. In fact, uh, everything that has transpired over the last uh, 15 years um, uh, has demonstrated that we were actually smack on target. And it wasn't until we began to face the headwinds of uh, reality uh, around certain geopolitical issues, uh, wars. Uh, we, we mentioned the Ukraine war, but there were many other wars that were happening in Syria and other terrible events that took place. Uh, the, the Congo was still in upheaval. Uh, governments were still struggling to stabilize in parts of Central America and Africa and Southeast Asia and so on. So it, this wasn't just uh, uh, going to be a simple task ever. And, uh, but, but the way in which the goals were calibrated, the way in which the targets were structured, allowed for so much flexibility be, you know, within countries, between countries, within continents, that the SDGs and the entire agenda has remained a viable proposition for global development. Like your, your positive um, emphasis, and I would I to ask you, Rachel, I mean, was there's a lot of positive, you know, to take from what David and and Machaya are reflecting upon, you know, we all recognize that the world has changed dramatically since the SDGs were first adopted. You know, we've heard both David and Machaya referring to, you know, these huge geopolitical upheavals that we've had, you know, the many major conflicts, obviously the pandemic and, and the worsening impacts of the climate crisis that, you know, becomes more and more alarming. Do you think the SDGs are still compatible with this new reality in which we are operating? Yes, and I think the fundamental truth that you find in the SDGs or that the fundamental pathway that we need to pick our way through as, as humanity um, is uh, strong and, and unassailable, notwithstanding how messy the world has continued to become, in part because, and these two gentlemen are too um rightly as very good diplomats uh humble to say so is because of that process that they built i mean this was a bottom-up crowdsourced set of goals which gives it a inner tensile strength that that simply they wouldn't have had if it was a bunch of guys in a back room in paris all over again 
So, um, so kudos to to the bravery and the foresight that it took to to sort of have that kind of process. But now, um, the relevance you find it in boardrooms, you find it in faculty clubs around the world, uh, where you know curriculums are being oriented. I mean, business school curriculums, not just public policy or development studies, um, where you see businesses sort of reporting out or at least using the SDGs as an internal pathway. So the world has got more complicated, uh, but there is something about the SDGs which still gives us a sort of true north. And mm. and to be fair, I think that when in 2015 when the gavel came down, I was in the room and it was, you know, it was kind of extraordinary because everybody was in support. You didn't have to wade your way through hundreds of pages of reservations and things like this. I mean, it, everybody was basically right there. We we knew then that the world was going to get more complicated. The climate mm-hmm. science was clear. Uh, we we were warned uh, by the WHO and the World Bank just after the SDGs that we would experience something like uh, the, the the COVID nineteen pandemic in the in the monitoring report that they published in 2019. We um, we knew that uh, as the IMF said that inequality was corrosive um, to development. We were hollowing out our economic capability in terms of development. So, you know, I think what the one thing that's happened is that these white rhinos, these threats in plain sight have charged towards us, unfortunately, faster than we hoped. And um, our ability to implement the SDGs has not moved forward with the alacrity and the commitment that we would have hoped. But are they still relevant? Absolutely. And not just relevant, as you say, they've captured the imaginations of so many people, they've become mainstream. And I think that is the, the most um, incredible result of you know what um, David and, and Machado led. And, and I think you're absolutely right to stress the bottom-up element. I, I mean, we at ODI contribute a little bit in our own um, right with the My World survey that, you know, millions of people um, um, filled out, you know, responded to shaping what they wanted in in the SDGs. But it's also true to say, though, that in the past few years, that the idea of development is itself has come um, into question. Um, and so this, this, you know, if you look at the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement, other activists, what seems to resonate with people these days is more, um, you know, a concept of solidarity rather than development. Um, so, David, what do you think are the implications here, and, and does it change anything for you know the leaders that are trying to um, make sure that we make progress towards the global goals in the lead up to 2030? Um, well, Sarah, first of all, um, could I just say that I. I um, I, I was very touched to hear Rachel talk about the actual uh, final session in in 2015, which I'm sure Mashari and I will never forget. But it was, uh, I mean, there was undoubtedly a, a, a high point of global solidarity in that room uh, at that stage. So for me, to be honest, the concept, the concepts of solidarity and development are more or less interchangeable. I mean, I don't want to sound too high-minded, but when we were sort of, when Mishari and I were kind of drafting and preparing, conducting the negotiations, we were trying to get across this sense of justice as well as, if you like, 
justice and solidarity which have to underpin development. The, the, the whole concept of leave no one behind, that was important for us. We were trying to convey the notion that the poorest and most vulnerable communities had to be at the very heart of the new agenda and indeed human rights generally had to be at the very heart. So to my mind, there isn't really a difference between development and solidarity. And uh, another way of um, looking at it is that we, we are all developing under the terms of the 2030 agenda, that if you like, no country has, uh, I mean, to use the the, the image of, of the road that we, we talked about setting out on the road to 2030, no country has reached the end of that road. Every country is somewhere on the road. And most of all, we have to help each other. We have to actually, I mean, mutual support rather than finger pointing was meant to be the, the way forward and, and, and still still is meant to be. Again, I don't want to sound too sanctimonious about it, but this idea of solidarity in the sense of one country helping another to make development. And, and frankly, may I say that the IFIs and development finance actors also have to be helping uh, countries to make progress. So really to, to try and answer your your question, Sarah, um, for me, solidarity and justice and human rights and kind of collectivity, they're at the heart of this new agenda. I think there's this thread of universality through the SDGs, and that's challenge, challenging, right? Uh, sometimes in the way governments report against them, but it's also challenging to the development complex. The development complex, which is rooted in a you know, the North, you know, helping out the South. And we've seen that really pushed back. I mean, we're recording this just a few days after the Africa Climate Summit, where mm -hmm. President Ruto, to the best of his ability, managed to shift the narrative a little bit to the fact that Africa can provide the solutions for the rest of the world, not just for Africa. Uh, yes, there's a lot of things that have got to be done, but it was a different, different narrative. And then, you know, energy poverty. So let's go 7.1, right? SDG 7.1, 7.1. Yeah, it's had some setbacks in in uh, some countries in Africa under energy uh, price, uh, fuel price inflation and things like this. But energy right. poverty is up in the UK. Energy poverty is up in the United States. Uh, there's universality to the need to achieve this goal. The gender goal, we've had setbacks in Afghanistan, we've had setbacks in Texas, and we've had setbacks in Alabama, and we've had setbacks in Oklahoma, right? So there is a universality to this, which is actually, I think, really empowering. And and it's kind of levels the playing field. And, and maybe the development movement focused on North talking to the South is one of the pieces of the um, the puzzle that needs to update itself because certainly youth movements and some of the solidarity movements out there and business to be honest sees the world a lot flatter i think uh, than perhaps others do i just want to ask you one final question um if you were to look ahead to 2030 um where do you hope we will be macharia well um First of all, I think by then we would have come to realize um, uh, that all development processes have um, a momentum and it takes time for things to take root, for people to develop new cultures of behavior, for, for uh, new cultures of association, for people to internalize uh, the full meaning of, of uh, of, of the collective genius of the SDGs and the 2030 agenda. And uh, for people now also to focus on 
what by then would have become so totally self-evident, it already is, that some of those issues that were that were unique to the SDGs, like climate and, and, and oceans and so on, as I was saying earlier, would have become so overwhelmingly <laughs> um, powerful in our daily lives that people will be grasping at the SDGs and the goals and targets for dear life, literally. So I, I think uh, the SDGs uh, can only be reinvented Re, uh, refined better, uh, expanded more, but the comprehensiveness of it and the universality of it is here to stay uh, beyond the 2030, um, for sure. Uh, and uh, as I said, it, it, it'll, be, it'll become hugely important to our kids and uh, the generation that's coming uh, to understand, because by then they would have gone through the learning curve, which we and, our, and, and, and all of our generation simply did not have the opportunity, either in college or in work life, uh, to go through um, as to what are the full implications and the full challenges of the SDGs and the 2030 agenda. So we will have a very different crop of, of global managers uh, working around these issues and who will be able to debate uh, the implementation of, of the SDGs very differently uh, from the current crop who, as I think Rachel uh, and others were hinting a little earlier, are a little bit out of step uh, with what the full implications uh, of this task that we've set ourselves really is. Um, but, but the world will bring that message home uh, climate will bring that message home. The oceans will bring that message home. Uh, the challenge of inequality will bring that message home in very powerful ways over the next few years. And people will look to that structure to deliver uh, a better world for all. Let's be honest. Uh, we're not doing as well um, on the individual targets uh, as we hoped we would have been by about now. But I think we know the reasons, uh, uh, in particular, those two setbacks that, that, that we, we've all been talking about, um, COVID and, and the, the Ukraine war. The Secretary General talks about us being on track for only 12, I think, of the 169 targets. But that, of course, is disappointing. It's not a surprise. I, I, I agree strongly with Masharia that the agenda as it exists is the right one. I think that when it comes to 2030, we'll be talking about maybe adding to it, uh, in refining it, uh, but I don't see us subtracting from it. I can think of a few things where, you know, Mishari and I, when we were doing the negotiations, we might have had a mental note, oh, we should have a bit more of this, or we, I mean, let me give you an example. Um, we, the, 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 there was no particular goal on migration. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were a few targets which referred to it indirectly. But now there would be a greater sense that migration is a key enabler for sustainable development. So if I was in the same position in 2030 as we were both in uh, several years ago, I would be sort of trying to give more prominence to migration. I would be giving more prominence to 
new technologies, uh, artificial intelligence. I'd be giving more prominence to development finance. I mean, I'd be trying to link in climate much more explicitly. Uh, We were in a situation where the Paris negotiations were happening in parallel and we couldn't really uh, second guess too much what might go on there. But so there were various things that I can think of which would be which could be added to a new agenda but i think fundamentally the 17 goals and the 169 targets i think that they are here to stay let's call it the 2040 agenda i mean i think that effectively will roll over as the ongoing agenda if you ask me will it all be achieved by 2030 of course it won't but what is nevertheless remarkable is uh the the extremely positive, upbeat mood which one detects at the UN in relation to the years between now and 2030. I'm concerned uh, about um, how much uh, trouble we have to get into before we start digging our way out of the hole. Um, uh, And I think that the SDGs are the way out of the hole. And I, I, what I hope is that no matter how we manage the politics of our relationships as an international community over the next few years, that the leave no one behind piece of the SDGs is, is, is somehow a, a thread that we hold on to because we can see progress in, in each of the SDGs, but you can progress against them and still leave people behind. I mean, you, you can install you know, 100 gigawatt of power and export it for, you know, export it. Installing 100 gigawatt and making sure everybody's got access to energy and you're exporting, you know, that's the trick of it. And I could give you examples for that in every one of the 169 targets, right? And so um, how the uh, extraordinary crowdsourcing that the UN gave birth to and that these two guys led us through, how that leads to coalitions at the local level and at the national level that actually you know, have community-based priorities within, you know, national challenges, within international challenges. That's really the key to it. And we've seen glimpses of that. We've seen glimpses of communities coming together and saying, you know, we just want governments to tell us the truth so that we can be a partner with government and we can actually, we've seen citizens' assemblies. Obviously, Ireland has given us a great example in how to do that over the last decade, but we've seen them in other countries as well. If Parliament's not doing it for you, then let's have citizens' assemblies. And maybe there's another there's another aspect of the SDGs over the next few years, which is if elected authorities simply do not allow progress to move forward quickly enough, then... Um, you know, maybe there are different ways to to coalesce around this this agenda so it keeps moving forward. Thank you so much, um, Machaya, David, and Rachel. I leave this conversation really energized ahead of you know the conversations in New York next week. As you know, we heard throughout um, these discussions, you've really helped create a movement. Um, that's a reality. That's what it is. It's a movement that has inspired minds that has inspired young people, that has spurred action, um, that has helped bring together private and public in, you know, in a shared effort to make progress on what is a shared agenda to make the world a better place. And yes, there have been setbacks and we're not, you know, progressing fast enough. But as you've all said, the agenda stands. Um, David, you said, you know, is a commitment that is still unbroken. It's this framework that, you know, binds countries and people 
morally. And so I think it's really time to um, remind ourselves that we need to redouble um, our collective efforts to accelerate progress over the next seven years for you know all the reasons Rachel was saying, because actually a lot of vulnerable people are suffering the worst impacts of you know the slow progress uh, that we have made um, towards um, the delivery of some of the goals. Um, and so let's try and continue to create partnerships that can help us move faster um, towards delivering the goals. Um, let's add other goals. It is a, an odd number. As you said, David, you know, there are other agendas that may need to be added. So an agenda 2040, maybe an agenda of 20 goals if needed. But by and large, the current agenda 2030 stance, and, and I think it is a moral imperative to accelerate how we deliver it. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. As always, um, the research and other resources that have been mentioned in the conversation are available in the show notes. Um, we hope you will join us again next time. And if you enjoy Think Change, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening.